While Bitcoin is still mainly seen as digital currency, it's essentially a time-stamped log with special properties. As such, it can be utilized for far more things than payments and store of value. I presented some of the alternative uses several years ago, and the list continues to grow. Brian Deary, chief scientist at Factum, wrote an excellent history of timestamping in which he argues that a secure timestamped record wasn't feasible before the existence of secure digital value. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got another piece today. We are reading a piece by Jameson Lopp, again from his blog. Uh, And this one is really fun. My favorite thing about Lopp is he's really good at addressing and fine-tuning the nuance in the engineering side of protocol bitcoin's protocol design and that nuance and the probabilistic nature of the game theory and the cost involved in bitcoin and why and just just the opening quote actually that uh, i used with deary's suggestion that a secure decentralized timestamp server can't exist before you can create secure digital value but what's funny is that that is it's circular because the digital value is there because of the secure decentralized timestamp server. And I think one of the fascinating things that it really lends to is this extremely, this very strong relationship between the nature of time and value, which I want to bring back up a little bit in this guy's take, but also um, I want to dig further into the whole idea of side chains and make an assessment of kind of where we are in that because this piece was written back in 2016 and we just did the piece about drive chains and there's actually another piece about liquid and federations and a lot of these things that are starting to pop up they they seem to be having a second wind or a second level of excitement in how they get applied and how we think about it uh, or how we think about them. So I want to revisit a lot of these things, uh, and I think this piece in particular will be really good at understanding some of the foundations for leveraging Bitcoin as an anchor for the history of other transaction systems, for essentially allowing Bitcoin, the Bitcoin chain, the Bitcoin time chain, to store proof of the state of other layers that are built off of it. And I think even six years later, this is all still very relevant. So we'll go ahead and just let uh, Lop, Jameson Lop, uh, break this down for us. And it's a little bit long, so I'm going to have a short guy's take at the end because this will be referenced a lot in one of the next episodes that we are doing. So stay tuned, stay subscribed, and let's get into the article. This show is brought to you by CoinKite and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet. It's one of the most highly trusted hardware security devices in the space to store your Bitcoin. It is a versatile signing device that keeps your keys safe 
from hackers and security and surveillance-ridden smartphones. You can get one with 9% off with my code BitcoinAudible. And if you use it and plug it into the Nunchuck wallet and you use the NFC, so you just tap to sign the transaction, and you don't fall in love with it, then you don't have a heart. But you do still have 9% off with code BitcoinAudible. But where can you get those sats to send to your cold card? Well, first, you can connect your online store to accepting Bitcoin that sends automatically to your cold card. A full web front end that you can set up in literally seconds. No KYC, no channel management. All the Bitcoin is forwarded directly to you in however you like it. Nodeless.io slash guy. It's essentially BTC pay simple. This is why I've been using it a lot. It just works and it's easy. And at the end of the day, that's what I want. And there's no KYC and they're just the service just sends it directly, just funnels it all straight to my, my keys. And just a 1% fee for all of that hassle to just go away. That's an easy sell, man. My time is precious. Go to my link at nodeless.io slash guy if you want to check them out. And then get yourself a full debit card. And then you're going to just be stacking sats like crazy. You buy your groceries, you get sats back. You pay for your bills, you get sats back. You woke up and it's a new day, you get free spins and you're going to win some sats. You want to buy some right in the app, get some sats. Get some Amazon gift cards with even more sats back. Oh, you've been buying a whole bunch of stuff today? Well, here's some more spins for some more sats. I've crossed over $7,000. It's 24 million sats in rewards for using the Fold debit card. Drop your bank, get in the Fold. And there's 50,000 free sats for signing up at my link, bitcoinaudible.com fold, and you'll find it right there in the show notes. With that, let's get into today's article. And it's titled, Bitcoin, the trust anchor in a sea of blockchains, by Jameson Lopp. Bitcoin is the strongest permissionless blockchain in terms of computational security because it has the most resources being expended in order to secure it via a process known as proof-of-work. Bitcoin has a number of properties that give it utility, and thus value, such as trustlessness, permissionlessness, transparency, and immutability. When you broaden your perspective of Bitcoin from a currency and payment system to that of a secure historical ledger, it becomes clear that these properties in conjunction with each other can enable powerful applications. As the blockchain but not Bitcoin buzz continues to intensify, we can see that this is because many existing business and financial use cases don't see a need for trustlessness and permissionlessness. Traditional financial institutions already have semi-trusted permissioned relationships that have been established over many decades, and their goal is to re-establish these relationships with new technology that makes coordination more efficient and robust. Public ledgers like Bitcoin have been problematic for financial institutions because transaction validation is performed by a group of potentially unknown parties, while financial institutions are often legally required to vet every transaction going through them. Some of Bitcoin's properties are difficult to describe comprehensively. While permissionless, anyone can use the system without asking permission or fear of being censored, and transparency, 
anyone can audit the ledger, are straightforward. Trustlessness and immutability are more complex. Tweet from Jameson Lopp. Public permissionless consensus systems let you use them without trusting any one individual. However, you must trust everyone in aggregate. Bitcoin advocates often distill trustlessness as meaning you don't have to trust anyone, but this is an oversimplified perspective. A consensus system such as Bitcoin distributes the power to dictate how the system operates across a large set of people, developers, miners, merchants, users, etc. A reasonably decentralized system will make it very difficult to enact any changes that are not beneficial to an overwhelming portion of its participants. But at the root of the system, there is still trust involved. You must trust that most of the power held in the system belongs to users with your same sense of morality and rationality. Immutability is also a complex property to define. Bitcoin advocates often simplify it as no one has the power to reverse the blockchain's history, though a nuanced view has caveats similar to those involving trustlessness. Let's delve into the factors that affect immutability. Proof of Immutability Bitcoin is the strongest permissionless blockchain in terms of computational security because it has the most resources being expended in order to secure it via a process known as proof-of-work. While proof-of-work critics will point to the extreme, quote, inefficiency of the algorithm, the inefficiency is the entire point. Proof-of-work makes it extremely expensive to attack the Bitcoin protocol's consensus mechanism, which makes its history highly trustworthy and effectively immutable. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to quantitatively compare different consensus algorithms in order to rank them and find the, quote, best one. As Rootstock developer Sergio Demian Lerner put it, Tweet by Jameson Lopp. Are there any academic papers that compare proof-of-work, proof-of-stake, distributed proof-of-stake, and Casper, other than Polstra's? Sergio. They cannot be easily compared. Their real security relies on honesty, ethic, reorg bribery, legal risks, not only economics. Nonetheless, a handful of reputable minds have made valiant efforts to do so over the years. Andrew Polstra defends proof of work in this publication about dynamic membership multi-party signatures, aka distributed consensus algorithms where anyone can participate. Polstra defines DMMS, or Dynamic Membership Multiparty Signature Algorithms, as having three components. A cost function, a signing function, and a verification function. Polstra goes on to argue that the most secure and fair DMMS is one for which there is no better signing algorithm than to simply execute the signing function repeatedly. In Bitcoin's case, the cost function is defined as Quote, number of hash function calls, which is a direct result of energy expenditure, a scarce resource, a cost that is external to the system being secured. He writes, quote, Because Bitcoin's DMMS is computationally and therefore thermodynamically very expensive, alternatives have been proposed which seek to be economically and environmentally more efficient. One popular alternative, proof of stake, is frequently proposed as a mechanism for a cheap distributed consensus. 
Proof of stake is the use of cryptographic signatures to show that the owner holds a vested interest in the system and has thus theoretically, quote, paid a cost at some point in the past in order to obtain tokens. Proof of stake has issues with its cost function, according to Polstra. This is primarily an issue of time. Blockchains don't have a sense of time. Thus, if you're presented with a historical blockchain that appears to be valid, you can't be sure that it isn't merely one of many blockchains that were generated by an attacker. This is because it's relatively cheap for an attacker to recreate an entire proof-of-stake chain on their own. All they need are private keys valid for staking at any point in the blockchain's history. This presents a security flaw. The result is that a new node joining the network can't trust just any valid chain that is presented to it, because there could be innumerable valid chains. Instead, the node must check with its peers to ensure that it is on the same chain as them, which opens a vulnerability to Sybil attacks. This contrasts with Bitcoin's security model, where a new node only needs to connect to a single honest peer because the chain with the most cumulative proof of work is clearly the legitimate chain. Bitfury also published an in-depth analysis of proof-of-work versus proof-of-stake, noting that naive proof-of-stake suffers from the nothing-at-stake problem. If a staker is aware of multiple blockchain forks, the rational thing to do is to mine on every fork, because it doesn't cost more to do so. Recall that proof-of-work miners spend electricity, a resource that is external to the network. Proof-of-stake miners, on the other hand, use an internal resource, namely their account balance, and spend far fewer external resources. This makes proof-of-stake systems inherently untrustworthy in the eyes of many cryptocurrency enthusiasts. An attacker can try to fork the blockchain, i.e. create a longer blockchain than the current one, spending little real resources, and he can even be aided by other miners since they don't spend any real resources either. By forking, an attacker can invalidate certain transactions and execute double spins, Attackers can be roughly broken down into two categories, short-range and long-range. In short-range attacks, the most recent blocks are replaced. In long-range, the attacker goes deeper, trying to replace the history of the network, potentially as far back as the Genesis block. Quote, Pure proof-of-stake approaches pose substantial security threats that cannot be recreated in proof-of-work systems. These problems are inherent to proof-of-stake algorithms, as proof-of-stake consensus is not anchored in the physical world. Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin explained several years ago why he likes proof-of-stake and proposes several modifications to proof-of-stake that would disincentivize both short- and long-range chain rewriting attacks. He argues that these protections are good enough for everyone except new nodes joining the system, who would need to get a blockchain checkpoint from a trusted entity, possibly someone in their social network. From his viewpoint, this is acceptable, because consensus algorithms are just automating the existing human consensus process, which is based upon social networks. With Casper, Ethereum's proposed future proof-of-stake algorithm, Buterin argues that neither proof-of-work nor proof-of-stake can offer perfect, quote, settlement finality or immutability but that Casper offers, quote, economic finality. He writes, quote, We can't guarantee that X will never be reverted, but we can guarantee the slightly weaker claim that 
Either X will never be reverted, or a large group of validators will voluntarily destroy millions of dollars of their own capital. Interestingly, Buterin states, One of the main ideological grievances that has led to cryptocurrency's popularity is precisely the fact that centralization tends to ossify into nobilities that retain permanent power. In another post, Buterin wrote, All pure proof-of-stake systems are ultimately permanent nobilities, where the members of the Genesis block allocation always have the ultimate say. No matter what happens 10 million blocks down the road, the Genesis block members can always come together and launch an alternate fork with an alternate transaction history and have that fork take over. Daniel Larimer reviewed Casper, arguing... Anyone without sufficient stake would be unable to participate profitably. Furthermore, those with the most stake will have the highest margins. The end result of this economic arrangement is that participating in Casper will only be profitable for a small subset of whales, likely a dozen or less. This certainly sounds like the nobility problem to which Buterin has referred on several occasions, While a similar argument can be made about Bitcoin, I have written previously about why Bitcoin's mining centralization is likely a short-term phenomenon. Paul Stortz provided a unique perspective in which he argues that proof-of-work is actually cheaper than proof-of-stake. According to Stortz, all versions of -of proof-of-stake are simply obscured versions of -of proof-of-work. There is always some sort of work that can be performed to increase one's revenue. Thus, unless the consensus algorithm is totally independent of all possible human activities, it will inevitably become a form of of proof-of-work. Stortz argues the same of delegated proof-of-stake. Quote, DPoS is a plutocracy where people use, but neither spend, like, quote, democracy nor risk, quote, capitalism, their money to elect a hundred senators who sign blocks in a sequence and thus secure a nearly peer-to-peer network. If learning who to vote for takes, quote, work, then even absent bribes, voters will always be susceptible to work-based influence. In permissionless consensus systems, a validation algorithm is needed to introduce scarcity. Proof-of-work is rooted in physics and is quite similar to the process of mining physical resources, such as gold, silver, and iron. One could argue that the scarcity of many such natural resources is regulated by the difficulty involved in acquiring them. As such, natural resources are a proof of work. It's a mechanism that has been recognized as valuable by humans for thousands of years. Mining of physical resources is labor-intensive. The product is a proof of work. Is proof of stake dead on arrival? Probably not, since a number of smart developers keep working on advancing this concept. It may be good enough, quote-unquote, for certain uses. When Bitcoin Core developer Gregory Maxwell was asked about his thoughts on proof-of-stake, he wouldn't go as far as saying it can never work, but he did say that, quote, It's clear that you don't get the same security model as Bitcoin, but it's not clear if what you get is actually useful. The Cost of Immutability Permissionless and permissioned blockchains have very different security models. However, permissioned blockchains tend to have a federation of fewer than 100 validators, while popular permissionless blockchains have orders of magnitude more. From a validator attack vector, 
permissionless blockchains have superior security because it would take more resources to compromise or overwhelm a sufficient number of validators. At the time of writing, to purchase enough new hashing power to own 50% of the Bitcoin network, or 1,487,398 terahashes per second, would cost approximately 114,415 Antminer S9s, at about 13 terahashes per second, with units at $2,500, or $286 million in hardware costs, and 1.4 kilowatts times 114,415 times roughly 8 cent per kilowatt hour, or $12,815 per hour in electricity costs. To purchase 50% of Ethereum's network hash rate, at 3,700 gigahashes per second, you would need 142,307 AMD Radeon R9 390s at 26 megahashes per second at $300, or $42 million in hardware costs, and 0.3 kilowatts times 142,307 times 8 cent per kilowatt hour, or about $3,415 an hour in electricity costs. To purchase 50% of Litecoin's network hash rate, the necessary resources would be 1,362 gigahashes per second, or 45,400 Zeus Miner Thunder X3s, 30 megahashes per second, at $250, or $11.3 million in hardware costs. And 1 kilowatt times 45,400 times 8 cent per kilowatt hour, or $3,632 per hour in electricity costs. This is a naive model because it's probably not even possible to purchase that many units of ASICs and GPUs. There are also plenty of other costs that aren't covered in this model, such as hosting infrastructure, cooling, and human administrative costs. For the sake of simplicity, let's assume that these costs scale similarly with the number of hashing units under management. Electricity costs can also vary but would change each result proportionally. From the numbers, it's clear that Bitcoin is far more secure from a resource attack against its consensus algorithm than even the next most popular cryptocurrencies. However, this doesn't mean that Bitcoin is perfectly immutable. While cost of a computational attack prices out all but the wealthiest entities in the world from ever considering it, the human layer of consensus must also be considered when evaluating a blockchain's immutability. Immutability and Social Consensus The immutability of a blockchain is secured by more than just the resources required to mount an attack against its consensus algorithm. There is also a political and philosophical component. For an example, see the recent DAO exploit that drove the Ethereum community to perform a hard fork in order to prevent an attacker from absconding with a significant portion of all Ether. This would likely never be proposed by Bitcoin developers due to their perspectives on immutability and fungibility. But Buterin's view of consensus as a social mechanism means that Ethereum will evolve from a different set of principles. As a result, more Ethereum developers find it to be acceptable if the community wants to agree to change the state of the ledger for the common good. Many people have claimed that forking Ethereum at the protocol layer to counter an attack at the app layer is setting a terrible precedent that will forever damage Ethereum's promise of immutability. I think this claim is flawed for several reasons. 
Every blockchain is based on some form of social consensus. That is, humans must first decide what protocol to run before the machines can enforce it. As such, humans can always decide to change that protocol if there is meat space consensus to do so. A distributed consensus protocol can be forked for any reason. It could be in response to a problem at the protocol layer, in response to a problem at a layer above or below the protocol, or in response to a problem completely external to the system. The world of public distributed consensus is rooted in crypto anarchy. There is no institution that must abide by precedence. Every situation will be judged uniquely, and quite possibly by completely different sets of humans, depending upon who is participating in the system at the time. Past performance is not indicative of future results. If you want to get pedantic, a blockchain fork is not a group of people who are stealing from others by force. Rather, it is what occurs when much of the user base decides that they do not find the current state of the blockchain to be in the best interest of the system, so they leave that blockchain voluntarily for one with a more desirable state. Bitcoin itself has forked in response to flaws in the past. A hard fork was implemented in Bitcoin 0.1.0 to change the best change logic from using the longest chain to the chain with the most cumulative proof of work. A soft fork and five-hour chain reorganization was implemented on the 15th of August 2010 when someone exploited a value overflow bug and created 184 billion Bitcoin. A machine consensus failure caused an unintentional fork in March 2013, and social consensus was quickly employed in order to reorganize the blockchain back onto the original chain fork. Bitcoin, NXT, Veracoin, and Ethereum have all found themselves faced with the same dilemma of a massive theft, and each community responded differently. Bitcoin, having experienced many major thefts, has never considered forking in order to reverse a theft. While its exchange rate dropped after many of these incidents, it always recovered. A list of major Bitcoin thefts and their amounts in both Bitcoin and the US dollar equivalent can be found in the chart at the link provided in the description. Nearly 30% of all Veracoins, worth about $2 million, was stolen in the hack of the Mint Pal exchange in July 2014. As a result, the Veracoin developers implemented a hard fork to move the stolen coins back to Mint Pal's control. The exchange rate did not perform very well afterward. In October 2014, Bitter was hacked and lost 50 million NEXT, or NXT, worth about $1.75 million, or 5% of the money supply. The developers and community chose not to perform a hard fork. The exchange rate also did not perform very well afterward. On June 17, 2016, the DAO's smart contract was exploited, and nearly 4 million ETH worth tens of millions of dollars were drained. In the following days, the exchange rate was cut in half. A hard fork was executed on the 20th of July to return funds to their original owners. The exchange rate subsequently rose by 15% in the next few days. History shows that there is no clear answer to how emergency hard forks affect the faith and value that users have in a cryptocurrency. I suspect that an emergency situation merely reveals the robustness of the human consensus behind a given blockchain. If the humans are a cohesive group, they can fork or not fork and remain in consensus. 
Otherwise, they may fork contentiously. Note the definition of contentious is debatable and end up damaging the machine consensus. Mark Andreessen once predicted that, quote, the libertarians will turn on Bitcoin. He said this due to the initial misconceptions many people held about Bitcoin's privacy. I think Andreessen's prediction may come true, but for a different reason. Cypherpunks will continue to improve Bitcoin's privacy. This will keep libertarians interested. However, as Bitcoin becomes more mainstream, the social consensus around what Bitcoin should be may change. If this occurs, we may not see the libertarians turn on Bitcoin so much as Bitcoin turn on the libertarians. It is for this reason that I believe it is incredibly important that we teach Bitcoin users the history behind cryptocurrency in order to instill cypherpunk values in them. A tweet by Jameson Lopp. A blockchain can only be as immutable as its community wants it to be. Meet space consensus trumps machine consensus. The Benefits of Immutability While Bitcoin is still mainly seen as digital currency, it's essentially a time-stamped log with special properties. As such, it can be utilized for far more things than payments and store of value. I presented some of the alternative uses several years ago, and the list continues to grow. Brian Deary, chief scientist at Factum, wrote an excellent history of timestamping, in which he argues that a secure timestamped record wasn't feasible before the existence of secure digital value. Deary writes, There needed to be a way to entice people to brute force hash chains. A good way of doing that would be to give them money. While some purists may claim that Bitcoin is only a currency and shouldn't be used for non-currency purposes, the system itself is agnostic. From the protocol's view, there is no such thing as a spam transaction, as long as a competitive fee is attached by the user in order to purchase the limited block space for its confirmation. The rise in timestamping service popularity can be seen on opreturn.org. You can easily harness this timestamping functionality via user-friendly services such as Eternity Wall, Virtual Notary, Proof of Existence, and Block Notary. Moving beyond the concept of simple timestamping of documents, more complex services are anchoring to Bitcoin's blockchain in order to benefit from its immutability. Anchoring essentially means that a service takes every piece of meaningful data in its system and computes a single hash that can be used to verify the system's state, given all of the original data. This hash is then stored in Bitcoin's blockchain at periodic intervals. The hash can be generated in any number of different ways, though one common method is to build a Merkle tree of all the data and then store the Merkle root as the anchor. It's worth noting that anchoring does not automatically make a service's data as immutable as Bitcoin's data, but it does provide a strong guarantee that any tampering will be evident. A recommended best practice for these services is to provide easy-to-use tools for users to verify the anchors against the state of the system. Why is this so important? I think Paul Snow, CEO of Factum, stated it best. One of the things about immutable ledgers is they tend to be honest because it's very hard to know today what lie I want to tell tomorrow. And if the lie has to be in the ledger, and I don't know what the lie is going to be until tomorrow, then basically my ability to lie 
is dramatically reduced. Some of the services that are anchoring to Bitcoin. BitPay's ChainDB, Blockstack, Counterparty, Factum, OpenChain, Tyrion's free API for Chainpoint, MIT Media Lab's Digital Certificates Project, Keybase. Keybase is a great example for efficient use of Bitcoin anchoring, as it allows you to associate numerous identities around the web with your PGP key, which is then associated with your Keybase key. Then the service builds a Merkle tree of all the Keybase keys and states the root in the Bitcoin blockchain every six hours. You can see the transactions here. Blockstack, formerly OneName, originally used Namecoin's blockchain as an anchor, but switched to Bitcoin because they decided that no other blockchain even comes close to Bitcoin in terms of security. Tweet from at Munib. Namecoin deserves full credit for originally solving naming on blockchain, but in the long run, you need to be on the most secure blockchain. Sidechains also anchor to Bitcoin to facilitate completely new blockchains that have their value cryptographically linked to Bitcoin. You can even theoretically create sidechains of sidechains, essentially building a tree of cryptocurrency pegs. Rootstock is going to anchor to Bitcoin as a sidechain via a hybrid two-way peg in order to bring smart contracts to Bitcoin. Liquid is a Bitcoin sidechain that enables faster private settlement between Bitcoin exchanges. John Light summed up the aforementioned projects in a very, quote, Bitcoin maximalist tweet. At Litecoin, many or all altcoin use cases will be redundant in 5 to 10 years due to layer 2 solutions and sidechains. Making an alt is a short-term decision. Namecoin moves to Blockstack. Steemit moves to Yours Network. Ethereum moves to Rootstock. NXT moves to Counterparty. Running out of reasons to use altcoins. It makes more sense for many institutions to build their own blockchains rather than leaving low-level development in the hands of the Bitcoin developers. The immutability of the settlement layer of Bitcoin has value for these institutions, but they may find little value in Bitcoin's other properties. Thanks to anchoring, they can have both. First, the hype was around Bitcoin. Now it's around blockchain technology. But eventually, the distinction between public and private chains will blur. Private chains that wish to improve their reputation will cross-Merkleize neighboring chains, indirectly creating an absolute order of global state transitions. Immutability is as immutability does. The strength of a distributed consensus system is dependent upon its anchors. The primary anchor must be the consensus algorithm that is going to handle the bulk of the work to hold the system together. An algorithm based on proof of work is preferable because it anchors the blockchain to the external world via consumption of external resources. The secondary anchor for a distributed consensus system is its community and governance structure. This serves as a foundation for the system to fall back onto if the machine consensus fails, or is about to fail, or needs to be upgraded for any reason. Immutability is impossible to measure precisely. When we describe a blockchain as immutable, we are broadly claiming that there is a guarantee that the contents will never be changed. However, from a machine consensus standpoint, this is a probabilistic guarantee that can never reach 100%. 
From a social standpoint, we can only gauge a blockchain's immutability by its history and make an educated guess about its future based upon the values held by its community. Bitcoin is a trust anchor. It is the system that provides the most reasonable degree of certainty for systems requiring shared perspectives. A tweet by Eric Martindale. With a strongly anchored blockchain to use as a foundation, an ecosystem of many chains can develop. As such, Bitcoin can be the one chain to rule them all, while simultaneously fostering a diverse array of blockchains. If you need a strong proof of your service's data integrity, don't choose second best. Anchor to the most trustworthy chain. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that piece. Um, and I do want to make a couple of notes before, like I said, we will be coming back to this um, after I read another piece that I think is just kind of relevant to a number of things we've been talking about lately, just on this idea of what I think of as Bitcoin subnets, this idea of layering the Bitcoin network and the, the transaction and ownership system and the various ways that we can do that. Obviously, Lightning, I think, has been kind of the... has cemented itself in the place as kind of a communication or a liquidity network between all of the various subnets that will arise on top of Bitcoin. But I think we're now getting to a place where Lightning is likely to have another major run, but... I think it will be alongside this new idea of subnets. The All of the development and all the work we've been seeing with Fediment, with eCash, with uh, more development and actual continual adoption of Liquid, which is really interesting, and then Liquid assets. And I think it's also very relevant to what Jameson Lopp talks about in this piece, actually, is that uh, because the episode that we did, Pooping in the Park, where we talked about inscriptions and ordinals, is that... I talked about, because in the context here, uh, Jameson Lott talks about using the op returns in order to publish a hash to save the state of another blockchain, just kind of as a, a source of truth for that blockchain's history, and then also for, obviously, just general timestamping services, which is cool, actually, too. I went, uh, went, he has a lot of links in this article, so if you actually want to go to the article, don't forget that the link is right there in the description. And there's actually a lot of really cool stuff to explore. And I think it's also just really fun to explore from the context. This is from 2016. So Lightning basically just barely even, even exists as an idea at this point. And there are so many projects which are still around, but the, the sidechain idea did not catch on Bitcoin as well as I think people expected it to during that era. Myself included, by the way. And I certainly don't think the idea is dead. I think it was in the wrong era of Bitcoin, so to speak. Is You know, we talk about that, the establishment of a new money, the development of its initial market, the store of value phase, and then it becoming a medium of exchange, and then ultimately the most liquid and most used medium of exchange becomes the unit of account. So this this long process, and I think the sidechain concept is the medium of exchange era 
Like it specifically exists in that zone. And this is something that we did really early on with Bitcoin is we were constantly trying to push it into the late stage medium of exchange and unit of account uh, processes or um, uh, functions. And we're just way, way ahead of all of the infrastructure, all of the liquidity, all of the mind share that had to change and the perspective around Bitcoin that had to change. It's just totally, totally out of order to, you know, think we're going to get merchant adoption in 2012 and 2013, which we did. I did. I remember trying to figure out how this was going to work. And then when I was, when you begin to see the technical limitations of the protocol and the explicit trade-offs made, and, you know, you kind of see this contradiction. You're like, well, shit, how does this how does this unfold? There was just so much to I mean, clearly, I mean, look at what we've both accomplished and more importantly, learned and the amount of establishing that's had to do just to get it used, not even as Bitcoin, but as a value foundation for international payments where it like obviously fits in. I think monetary transitions are just slow. And, and it makes perfect sense. We have all the historical precedent for it. Um, and, you know, this is still faster than any monetary shift that's ever happened. I mean, if you look at the timescale of where Bitcoin, how big Bitcoin is, how much this technology in general has taken over, including crypto crap, the fact that fiat is trying to pivot to crypto and you look at the time in which this occurred in comparison to some other monetary shift in history, the, you know, the first paper notes and bank notes, uh, these, these different eras. And that's just kind of in the technology. That's not even in the fundamental money itself, right? You go back to real monetary shifts like uh, rye stones and gold and cowrie shells and the, the time it took for the value reference to go from one money to another money. And the timescale at which Bitcoin has occurred is nothing. It's really, really small. And I think we were constantly trying to project that technology chart, right? The, the adoption of Facebook, the adoption of the microwave, and then the adoption of, you know, AI and ChatGPT. You see these ever increasing things. So you're like naturally like, well, this could work faster than the internet. But you think about it, the internet doesn't even have this huge mental block. It does have a, ma a huge infrastructure problem in order to get adoption for the internet, but it doesn't have this mental block that if the internet just provides you with a service. You're just like, oh, cool, a different way to have a service. It was mostly a literacy problem, really, that took the internet so long because even still to this day, there are people who don't understand what it's doing, don't understand how to use it, and it's only because of smartphones and that the kind of iOS environment the that smartphone that app environment making it so intuitive and so easy that even people who never had a computer don't use email and like just computer illiterate people in general needed that incredibly simple like incredibly fluid environment that the touch interface gave but bitcoin has a much larger barrier you know changing the concept of value, changing the mental framing of understanding what money is. Because it's not just that Bitcoin is a competing money, it's that Bitcoin is a competing money in an entirely new space and with an entirely novel idea that really kind of flies in the, it just contradicts the way the mainstream typically thinks about money. So it's got a really, really uphill battle. 
But I think where we are in Lightning, with the Lightning Network and the liquidity that that network has built up, I think we are doing it. I, th- I think what we're witnessing is kind of this, and I've talked about this a lot on the show, by the way. It's not This isn't something that I'm just thinking about, um, but that we're moving solidly into the medium of exchange era. Like, obviously, the store of value stage uh, or chapter of Bitcoin, whatever you want to call it, is never really over. Medium of exchange becomes a reinforcement uh, utility or a reinforcement network on top of Bitcoin's store of value network by making it more obvious that it's useful to store value because there's this giant liquidity network moving it around using it using its technology as a medium of exchange. And this is where I think side chains and these things like counterparty and rootstock, liquid drive chains, all of these things, liquid assets, fediment, this is where these will start to come back in and they they will basically be ground planted as some of these things start to pick up. So I think this was a really good one to hit in kind of understanding the why the sidechain idea is so enticing, maybe, and the value that Bitcoin, essentially the obvious way or the seemingly most natural way in which we can extend the incredible value that Bitcoin provides and that the proof-of-work consensus mechanism provides by establishing a canonical truth, essentially. And going back to actually what I brought up earlier about the episode with inscriptions and ordinals, when I was talking about inscriptions in particular, is the number of, the, the amount of data that is being crammed into Bitcoin is... Uh, Jameson Lopp talks about it in this piece, is that they can store the state of the chain uh, just by keeping a hash, by taking, putting it into a Merkle tree, taking the Merkle root, which is just, you know, 256 bits. It's just a small string, and it can represent an essentially unlimited amount of data. That is essentially all the value that you get out of Bitcoin using it as a timestamp server. Any custom data that you have or scripting or anything like that bitcoin does not care and it will not know whether or not you fed it bullshit or whether or not you fed it some brilliant code with some new script and you know a smart contract or anything it does not know it does not care it's not part of the consensus so cramming in all the data rather than the hash all the instead of the just the merkle root you just cram all this data in, you cram the scripts in, you cram the tokens in, you you cram in individual token transactions, you stick GIFs on it and NFTs. None of that extra data pulls any unique value out of Bitcoin that a hash can simply do. In, in, In the simple fact that all it's doing is proving its history. So if you can prove its history with 256 bits versus megabytes and megabytes of data... Well, then you would think a rational person would just use the hash. But anyway, I don't want to belabor that point again. Uh, I've, I'm going to save a lot of my notes that I have for this one for uh, another episode. Uh, probably tomorrow's episode, maybe, but it will be very soon. Because there's still quite a bit to unpack in this one. And, uh, and again, like I said, I'm always a fan of Lop's kind of ability to detail out, to fine-tune out the nuance in how the consensus and the security model of Bitcoin works. But one thing I did want to note, because uh, like I said, there's a lot of really great uh, links in here that are from 
2016. So there's also a number of links that are dead now that don't have anything. But one uh, block notary is actually still there and it actually looks kind of neat. Uh, it's blocknotary.com. And uh, I'm going to explore it. I just kind of saved the link so I can look around. Um, but uh, I just thought I would uh, recommend it in case anybody else wanted to explore. And if you find something cool, let me know. Hit me up on Noster. Shoot me a DM. Uh, you know where to find me. And if you don't, luckily, there's a description of this podcast that may or may not have the clues you need. And also, it will have our great sponsors who make this show possible. The Cold Card Hardware Wallet. It's not your cheese if you ain't holding your keys. When you get yours, do not forget 9% discount with code Bitcoin Audible. And if you're buying it with dirty fiat, use the fold card so you get sats back, please. Don't leave sats on the table. Somebody giving, is somebody giving you sats? You take the sats. And speaking of, you should set up a donation page because somebody might just really just want to give you sats. And you can use Nodeless, nodeless.io slash guy, as easy as it gets. And you'll find the link to that right there in the show notes, along with all this other great stuff. And you know, you're welcome. You're welcome for putting all this together for you. I mean, it's just so convenient. All right, I'm done. <laughs> uh, we are out. Thank you guys so much for listening to Bitcoin Audible. Uh, don't forget to check out AI Unchained. And I will catch you guys on the next episode. Until then, everybody, I am Guy Swan. Take it easy, guys. see a short distance ahead, but we can see plenty there that needs to be done. Alan Turing